Have you ever encountered a person that with exuberant confidence expounds at length on a topic that they really know very little? We call this behavior sophomoric. These persons lack self-awareness or what is known as metacognition. Today, we look at wise fools and how not to be one. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, panic in America. Oh, 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 oh. trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Super overconfidence anthem. Super overconfidence anthem. Super overconfidence anthem. Fantastic super overconfidence anthem. Super overconfidence anthem. Super overconfidence you may think that I'm a guy who hasn't got it all together But you'd be wrong, I am very, very confident You will make a little helper for fantastic in third person You know that cream rises to the top And I am that cream on the top Fantastic Super overconfidence anthem Super overconfidence anthem Super over. This ditty was written and performed by the songwriter and humorist Mr. G. It addresses the problem of some of us assuming greater knowledge of matters than we actually possess. Such misplaced self-confidence can produce a cocktail of hubris and arrogance. To be sure, one must not overestimate their abilities, for the result could be folly or worse, injury and perhaps even death. My guest today is David Dunning, who, with his partner Justin Kruger, developed the social psychological theory known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Welcome to Watching America. My guest today is Dr. David Dunning, who is known to most by his work with Justin Kruger in their fellow study of, well, competency to self-knowledge ratios, if you will. If you will consider a type of self-delusion of being able to do things better than, in fact, one may be able to do. Hence the phrase, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now, Dunning-Kruger is not the name of the publishing company associated with the comedy series The Office. It is, in fact, two individuals. David Dunning, my guest, and his partner, again, Justin Kruger. They arrived at this concept back in 1999, but prior to that, it was based on an experience of a, well, a man, shall we say, overly optimistic. His name was MacArthur Wheeler. In 1995, he walked into a bank in Pittsburgh and proceeded to rob it at gunpoint, mind you, without a mask nor a disguise of any sort. And moreover, he robbed a second bank just shortly afterwards and again exposed himself while brandishing a weapon. Later in the evening, he was arrested and quite surprised because, you see, he was under the delusion that simply by using lemon juice on his face, he would not be able to be detected on videotape. That certainly was not the case. The term associated with this, incidentally, in the broad sense, is what we call cognitive bias. But before we go any further, let me welcome Dr. David Dunning. Welcome to Watching America, sir. A pleasure to be here. You know, currently, um, speaking of, uh, of delusions of a sort, uh, we have Donald Trump, who is our president. And uh, it's my contention, not everyone is all bad, nor is everyone all good. Uh, There's a mix there. Uh, Donald Trump, he is, uh, shall we say, inclined to use a a, a poetic license or factual license that is actually distortion very often on, on major details associated with life as we know it. But there again, so is Joseph Biden. So we have both men declaring things that are not true once examined. And additionally, both men attribute achievements that they have never really uh, realized. What do you attribute that to? Well, I attribute that to uh, the human condition. Uh, That is, there's a little bit of both of these characters in all of us. That is, we all can say things that are untrue. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, presentation. Um, Sometimes it's uh, out-and-out fraud. Uh, But a lot of the times it's 
just honest. We truly believe the things that we're saying, even though they aren't very, very true. So what we see in them is something that's true, I think, in all of us. Uh, it's just that our lives under, are not under such scrutiny, such close, uh, every word being uh, parsed over. And it is the case that not everybody makes uh, sometimes such a masterpiece of not knowing the truth. Um, but uh, this is a, a part of the human condition. Our errors uh, are invisible to us. Uh, there are lies that we say without any knowledge that they're lies. Um, it's just part of who we are. Well, you are, after all, a psychologist. So can we uh, find ourselves all subjected to uh, sometimes believing our lies, creating lies, and perhaps initially knowing their lies and then accepting them as a, as a truth? Oh, absolutely. And uh, I just want to mention that there are two layers of this. I mean, there is active self-deception that we do. There's no question about it. And uh, in the work in my lab, we've actually taken a look to see whether the lies we tell to ourselves go down so deep as to influence vision, for example, literally what we see in the environment. So there is that layer, self-deception, active uh, rationalization, and so forth. But before you get there, there's the informational layer of problems, uh, which means that, um, well, uh, uh, Karl Popper, the philosopher, put it, um, our knowledge is by definition finite. Our ignorance, by definition, is infinite. And so they're just things we don't know. And um, what we don't know tends to be uh, invisible to us. And so people can fool themselves. They can deceive. It can be active. It can be in defense of ego. But it also, also could just simply be there's just more out there than we know. And there's no uh, way for us to know that fact. Well, you've invoked the name Karl Popper, uh, and uh, here we have an Austrian slash British uh, philosopher who, in 1974, uh, Sir uh, Karl Popper, who in 1974 um, uh, really pursued the, the whole notion of indeed what we don't know. Uh, I thought myself, speaking of delusions, Doctor, I've got to tell you, I thought myself very clever before assembling this program, and I thought, oh, I know what I'll bring up. I'll bring up Donald Rumsfeld. The what you know and don't know. And I thought I was going to be so clever. And then in additional research, true to your theory, I discovered that you'd addressed it. But for the for the purposes of the audience, let me quote the, uh, the, the former Secretary of Defense, who once responded to a question at a press conference by stating the following, quote, we know there are known knows and there are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns, that is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown knowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Essentially, um, I, I was delighted. At, you know, it was, it was a mixed bag here because I thought, oh, I'm going to be so clever and I'm going to introduce this as a concept. But you've already addressed it. Um, but it is very much akin, and I think rather artfully stated. I mean, there was a lot of humor about the man saying this. But actually, if you analyze it, it's quite clever. That is, there's a truism to your, to your outlook, is it not? Oh, no, absolutely. And I remember a graduate student brought me that quote when it first came out um, several years back. And uh, I know that Donald, well, there was much humor uh, leveled at Donald Rumsfeld for saying sure. it, but uh, I'd go beyond it being clever. I thought it was quite profound Yes, that there are uh, things that we simply don't know, we don't know. So naturally, our incompetence or ignorance, a grand portion of it, uh, a lot of the geography is going to be unknown to us because we simply don't know what we don't know. And uh, I think uh, we're seeing uh, examples of that coming up now uh, in the, this environment of the COVID virus, uh, because we have a lot of people who know something, like they may know math, and they may know how to project into the future. Uh, and uh, so they've been trying to do projections. Uh, this is especially uh, true in the early days, to try to figure out how many cases were we going to have, how many deaths were we, were we going to have. Um, but the unknown unknowns to them were everything that's included in scholarship on epidemiology. So they had just enough knowledge to think they could come up with an answer. Indeed, they did come up with an answer, but it wasn't a fully uh, informed answer um, because you really do have to know about correlated errors, um, uh, it li uh, limits to growth of the virus and so forth, um, how many strains are, in, and, and that's contained in the field of epidemiology, but you had people who were outside the, um, the field of epidemiology uh, opining. And um, they were 
suffering, if you will, from their unknown unknowns. Uh, there's actually a term we've come up to describe this behavior. Uh, a philosopher, a uh, collaborator of mine, Nathan Ballantyne, have talked about epistemic trespassing. When we're not an expert in some field, but we think we know enough that we can dismiss the experts and come to our own conclusion and make our own pronouncements. And uh, so one of the things we have to be on, on guard against is when we're listening to new information, uh, are we listening to an epistemic trespasser? But also um, make sure we don't do epistemic trespassing as well. And, and I have to admit, though, there's a little bit of an irony in this, which is this is all about choosing the right expert to pay attention to or knowing when the person is an expert, which is devilishly hard to do when uh, you are not an expert yourself and have a lot of unknown unknowns. Well, your theory basically says that uh, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Uh, but there is a, a high end to this and a low end to it, statistically speaking, where you have persons who are at the high end who do have great competency, perhaps even genius, you've indicated, whereas you have other people who are typically suffering from uh, a self-imbued uh, in self sense of importance and competency. So you have a graph. The vertical line would be confidence and the horizontal line at the bottom, this is an L shape, but the horizontal line would be knowledge and experience. Typically for the beginner, you say that we are inclined to think we have a better command of something with just a minimal amount of exposure very often than in fact we, we really do. And it is the uh, hubris of the ignorant to assume this, whereas those who really persevere in an, in an area of knowledge come to a type of sobriety and humility where they say, you know what, I'm not even sure I'm completely certain of, of what I think I know. And you would consider that a type of intellectual health. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. Uh, although I have to mention the specific graph that you um, described actually isn't us. It isn't the Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, that is it, it, one of the ironies of the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is about uh, getting things wrong and not knowing it, mm -hmm. is a lot of people talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And uh, I've seen uh, YouTube videos of people talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what they're talking about is nothing what we did. Um, uh, what we did, I'll just say, is we just simply took a snapshot in time, like students walking out of an exam, uh, and asked them how well they thought they did on the exam, and getting their permission to find out how well they actually did, and then just simply tracked uh, how a, the perception of performance um, followed the uh, reality of performance. And what we found is that people at the bottom, uh, these are people getting Ds and Fs in the bottom 25%, let's say, tended to think they had outperformed uh, a majority of their peers. They thought they had outperformed 60, 65% of their peers, but in fact, that was very much not the case. Um, th that's what we did. The other thing we did, by the way, is that top performers underestimate themselves in a certain way. We can talk about that later. But if you go onto the web, uh, what you find is a graph that's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, which is not what we did, uh, so it's wrong, uh, but it has a, a deeper sin, which is that it's more interesting than what we did, and uh, which basically talks about experience, going from being a rank beginner to being an, um, having enough experience that you're an old sage, for example. And, uh, uh, and as you uh, begin experience and gain a wee bit of knowledge, uh, you get a burgeoning confidence that actually isn't followed by actual performance. So you get a, a beginner's bubble, if you will, of overconfidence that people begin to reconsider as they learn more through time. And then sooner or later, uh, confidence and accuracy begin to match up better. It's never perfect. People remain overconfident. But um, uh, it, what's very true is that um, not rank beginners, but beginners with a little experience are um, at least in our um, uh, in our work, are tremendously overconfident. That is, confidence races far ahead of actual performance. Now, that's what people are describing. And uh, so when this uh, false Dunning-Kruger graph started showing up, uh, I was, I have to admit, first uh, worried, vexed, uh, if you will. Dismayed. Uh, but then I decided, uh, dismayed, absolutely. But I thought the only way to repair things was to actually test them, this more interesting version and see if it worked. And the answer is yes, it exactly does work. Um, this is work I've done with Carmen Sanchez, where we introduce people to a new post-apocalyptic world, for example, where they have to diagnose zombie diseases. 
and then track how good they are in our made-up world in diagnosing the diseases versus how well they think they're doing. And what we get is this burst of confidence um, at the beginning. That is, people start off um, cautious, as they should, uh, but after a little bit of experience, they get ahead of themselves in terms of how well uh, they're thinking. So it's not being a rank beginner, but being a uh, somewhat of a beginner. That's uh, when you're your your most dangerous. I mean, uh, Pope was right with uh, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And and by the way, in the real world, you see this as well. That is, there are data with uh, doctors learning a new technique using uh, robotics in placing uh, screws in the spine, and they don't make mistakes right at the beginning. It takes about 15 surgeries, and they start making a lot of mistakes, uh, which potentially indicates they're overconfident in what they're able to do. And then it self-corrects as time goes on. And, now, I, I, uh, have, I have no data to, to support this, but I suspect, I mean, at least my presumption, which as we all know now, by, based on your very theory, means it is just that presumption. But uh, I, I think of, uh, of private pilots who just get their license. And I'm wondering, I mean, I have no data before me, if there's a parallel or association with at what stage most pilots, if they're going to have a mistake, sometimes fatal, um, if it will be, you know, within a given amount of hours that they have a flying time uh, before they graduate, uh, not uh, literally, but figuratively to a point of assuredness that they really are sober in what they're doing. And, and it, it seems to make sense with what you're saying about surgery. That graph does exist. That work does exist. And I've actually uh, talked to the researcher, and he sent me the data. So actually, I have the data sitting on, on my computer. Uh, that's exactly what you see in flights and accidents, that really um, new beginning pilots don't cause many crashes. But at about, uh, depends on the type of flying you're doing, about 800 hours of flight time. You get uh, the height of accidents occurring, mm. and uh, pilots are in the middle of what's referred to as the killing zone. So it's not the rank beginners uh, to be afraid of. It's the person who has a little experience with uh, being a pilot. There's a phase that uh, they're going to have to live through and hopefully do live through where uh, whatever's going on, um, their performance isn't matching up where it should be or where they think it might be. Why are we so reticent? to acknowledge that we don't know something? Uh, I think there are many uh, stories to tell in psychology that all conspire to this. I think that the most important one is that our what we don't know or ignorance is just invisible to us uh, most of the time. We just don't know. If we knew, uh, we would uh, take that knowledge and or expertise into account. So uh, we don't know it because we simply don't know it. But the other thing as well, that we fall prey to is uh, when we're testing an idea, uh, we test it by looking for uh, confirmatory cases, constant cases, um, positive cases for that theory being true. Um, that's called confirmation bias. And we don't do the opposite. We don't ask, okay, this is a theory we have of the case. Uh, in what ways might I be wrong? Uh, in what ways could this idea be untrue? We don't do disconfirmation. And that leads us to believe in a lot of things that aren't true, uh, simply because there are just so many more things that are plausible in our lives than are actually true. And so it's that lack of taking the step of disconfirmation that often uh, leads us to uh, faulty theories and faulty decisions. You're in a much better position to evaluate and, and assess this. I think it's it's a loss of identity. When when people point things out to us that we assume to be true, which are not true, people lose a sense of self and everything uh, uh, about them, the id, the, 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 the ego, it becomes extremely fragile. Am I correct or am I amiss in this? Oh, yes. I mean, that's, that's the next layer. I mean, there's the informational layer and then there's the uh, affirmational layer or the motivational layer, as we would say in psychology, where identity is absolutely in the mix. That is, there are some uh, beliefs that we identify with. Um, they are sacrosanct. They can't be changed. And, there, and the, the one central one is uh, clearly I am a lovable and capable person. Um, not all of us, but the majority of us l love to have that belief, and any other idea we have has to navigate and honor that belief. The other is that I have an objective sense of what's really going on in the world. 
Um, and anything that calls that into question um, calls our identity into question, and uh, that's an issue. And this actually was my work in the 90s showing how much people were um, rejiggering their beliefs about other people uh, in order to maintain the idea that I myself am really great. Um, and, uh, and even though uh, the self-identity, uh, we, we never mentioned it. So, for example, if um, uh, uh, for a college student, uh, being studious really, really matters. And if a student doesn't study many hours um, uh, and they find out how many hours other students uh, study, they say, everybody is studious. Uh, that person studies two hours a week. They're studious. So I can retain that identity myself. But a person who studies uh, 35, 40 hours a week, mm, you've got to get to a higher criterion before you qualify, like me, to be studious. Um, and uh, that may seem like a, a bland example, but I literally had students during debriefing sessions in groups uh, in my laboratory break out into arguments about whether or not a person who studies 15 hours a week is studious, and they could get quite vicious. Um, so uh, there are ideas we defend, and the idea of the self is one we absolutely um, defend. Not everybody, not all the time, but it is a very much a theme you see in psychology. Well, you mentioned something interesting about our, our self-concept uh, as far as goodness. Um, the Judeo-Christian perspective has been, well, since the beginning of, I suppose, uh, Holy Writ, um, but, you know, the, the concept uh, in the scripture of no one is righteous, no, not one, the idea is that none of us are completely good, we're all flawed, has kind of gone by the wayside. So if you ask anybody virtually, you know, are you a good person? Yes, I'm a good person. We can't all be good persons. I, my personal view is I'm not a, a good person. I strive to be, I hope to be, but I recognize my failings. Where does this self-esteem movement, which became very prominent and potent in the 1970s, affect um, our self-concept, perhaps negatively? Well, I think it, it's broader than the self-esteem movement. Uh, that is, one of the themes we tend to find, other people tend to find, is uh, what self really matters to you. Uh, is it the self you already are? Do you consider yourself a finished product? Are you already good? And uh, if that's the case, then you have a lot to defend. Uh, for example, if someone says, no, you're not as good as you think, whether it be in, in the classroom or in a moral situation, you have something to defend. Uh, if you are more worried about the person you're going to be, the person you're becoming, the person that you might be in the future, uh, there people tend to be more receptive to corrective feedback, if you will, uh, more receptive to failings, for example, uh, more likely to say if they've disappointed themselves, okay, now I have to commit to figure out how to do better, as opposed to defend the idea that anything I ever did was immoral. So the self-esteem movement, in some sense, promoted this self-fixed object, if you will, that self-esteem had to be protected, that self-esteem was already there, that self-esteem was a possession that uh, people already had. And as a consequence, it shifted to a vision of self where people get more defensive, as opposed to a, a sense of self where people kind of go, okay, there's the me today. Um, I'm sure hoping the me tomorrow or next week or in five years is going to be a better person. Let me work on getting there. So it's not necessarily the self-esteem uh, movement, but this, this more underlying theme that turns out to have uh, big consequences of when people are going to become uh, defensive. So is that where cognitive dissonance comes into play? Oh, that is. I mean, the issue with cognitive dissonance is people don't like contradiction. Uh, the problem with that, though, is people aren't very good at actually noticing contradictions. That's where the Dunning-Cook effect really uh, does show up. But people do care when one of the cognitions is me, my identity, myself, the idea that I'm lovable and capable or that I'm intelligent, or that I'm a moral person, uh, or uh, I'm the person who's going to achieve success in life. Those sorts of contradictions can be very aversive to people, and they can work very hard to defend against them. So uh, it does factor into this idea of when do people become upset about something they've never heard before, something that contradicts their beliefs. Are some people in danger of waking up to reality. What I mean by that is the following. In, in 1974, Robert Nozick, uh, in his book, Anarchy, 
state and utopia, posited the concept of what was known as the experience machine, or if you will, the pleasure machine. The idea being a, a, a simulated reality that one could be connected to, uh, that would fulfill a, a form of one's desiring, although not actually living firsthand. And this is very much akin to what you addressed in one of your lectures related to the matrix, the idea of the blue pill and the red pill. The, the red pill lets you see true reality, where the blue pill keeps you in a, a state of self-delusion. Are there some people who, when they realize they're not as smart, clever, beautiful, uh, good, whatever it may be, some virtuous capacity that they hold in high esteem, are there some people when they realize that that's not true, are in danger of some kind of psychological breakdown or aberrant behavior? Uh, I'm sure there are. Um, uh, and some people show that behavior more than other people. But uh, I have to admit my own bias here. I'm a social psychologist as opposed to personality psychologist. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in the situations or circumstances that promote that sort of uh, reaction in everybody. Um, when do we all act like that person, for example? Uh, when do we act like a person who is more accepting, uh, perhaps more noble? And uh, I don't think enough work has been done on that. Or, or rather, let's put it this way, uh, some work I'm going to be doing in uh, the next few years really compares how much is it, is it the person that produces defensiveness versus how much of it is the issue. Uh, that is, is more uh, if you get a breakdown reaction or a defensive reaction, is it uh, because of the person you're talking with or is it because of the issue that you're talking about? And um, I'll be in a better position to address that question then. But uh, I'm sure at the extremes, uh, there are people who are vulnerable. But I do want to stress that it's likely that we're all vulnerable sooner or later. So it's just a matter of when and the discovery exactly. of where. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Or that is the, or that is the question. Um, but uh, I wouldn't dismiss either possibility being true or both being true. It depends on the circumstance and it depends on who we are. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is perhaps one of the richest, most enthralling conversations I've had in a long time on this program. My guest today is Dr. David Dunning, who is known to most of us by his work with his colleague, Justin Kruger, in their study of the competency, if you will, uh, ratio of self-knowledge and our sense of, well, ability and perhaps even self-worth, a, a type at, at times a propensity for even perhaps a self-delusion of a sort. Hence the phrase, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, Dr. Dunning, I, I want to ask you about a, a kind of an impediment that might happen. These people who think they're particularly good very often, I wonder if they're able to actually go out and get great jobs. Uh, you know, years ago, decades ago, we heard about the Peter Principle, where people are promoted to the to the level of their incompetency. I'm wondering um, if if there is some kind of giftedness in being deluded in this fashion, because we do see people who will go out very boldly for other jobs that others perhaps, you know, I don't want to presume it's me necessarily, but many of us are more rational and say hey, gosh, gee, I'm not qualified for that. And then you sometimes in life experience see somebody come from left field and <laughs> assume a position and the rest of us are left, you know, playing with our lips going, bleep, 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 bleep. how did that happen? Um, Orson Welles, the great director, and I've mentioned this m many times in this program, spoke about the fact that he was able to create the work of genius, as we know, as Citizen Kane, mainly because he had what he called the gift of ignorance. He didn't know what he couldn't do. Do we sometimes run a risk of, well, just thwarting and destroying our, our optimism and, and possibility to do things in favor of these other um, uh, numb knuckles that come along and think they can do everything and then wind up in great positions of power and, uh, and prestige? Oh, I, well, I think this is a, a – you hit your head on, on a tremendous dynamic that, that's out there. Uh, that is one of the things uh, I've discovered in recent years is just how much our leaders tend to be flavored with narcissism, let's say. I'm not talking about clinical levels of narcissism, uh, but they do have a level of confidence that uh, the rest of us do not have. And this is true not only of disastrous leaders, this is also true of leaders who we admire uh, for their work to this day. I mean, for example, 
uh, you can find narcissism in the the life of Winston Churchill very, very easily, for yes, example. You can yes. find depression, you can find a lot of things. Um, but our best leaders and our worst leaders tend to be those who are very, uh, very self-assured. Um, General Patton, will. World War II, General Patton is a prime example of that. Exactly. I think the, uh, the way I, uh, I like to think of it is that we like narcissists, we like confidence, we want to be led by confidence. Uh, and uh, we can be assured that narcissists or those who are confident are going to take us for a ride. Now, it might be a good ride or it might be a bad ride, but those types of leaders are going to take us for a ride as opposed to someone who's more cautious, for example. But they tend not to fill the position of leadership uh, anyway. I mean, it is the case that uh, I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that confidence is a bad thing. Um, confidence can be a tremendously good thing. It can also be a tremendously disastrous thing. What it is is a thing that has to be managed. Um, that is, you have to know when it's the best to be confident and committed in what you want to do, and it, when it's best to have some sort of doubt. And I think, for example, if you talk, uh, go into any management class in business school, they'll talk about this. Um, when is it good to be confident? Well, it's good to be confident when you want to uh, really energize your employees, for example. You want to get them to commit to the vision that you have. Uh, even if it's a wrong vision, well, uh, it's a vision and odds are things are going to be okay. But coming to the right vision, knowing what the right decision to do, uh, which way to lead the troops, if you will, well, there you want to be overly cautious and really think things through down to the nubs of the details um, and worry and prepare and have contingencies. There you don't want to be confident. So um, I think the way to talk about confidence is uh, people often ask, is, is being confident, especially being unrealistically confident, a good thing or a bad thing? I'll just say it's a thing. It's how you manage it. Uh, do you manage it well? And I think that's something that uh, we could all work on a little bit more. Well, let's talk uh, in terms, uh, very loosely here, if you'll permit, in terms of groupthink uh, with cognitive biases. Um, uh, cognitive biases are produced really to, I think, to protect people from unwelcomed realities. A case in point was the majority of political pundits and certainly the press corps members who had convinced themselves in 2016 that Hillary Clinton was a shoe in for the presidency. Can you collectively... Uh, suffer from what has become known as the Dunning-Kruger effect? Oh, I think uh, absolutely we can. And there are a number of dynamics that exacerbate all of this. Uh, that is, what we tend to discuss with other people are the points that uh, where we all agree. People tend to, um, uh, if they find out that other people disagree with their opinions, uh, they don't really talk about those opinions much anymore. So as a, as a social being, um, we it's like a, harmony. It's a spiral of silence, right? Well, there, yeah, there's, there's a spiral of agreement and silence that occurs. And we all become skilled at knowing which of our uh, opinions might be unpopular. I mean, I'm sure there are a, a lot of people who whisper they think that Donald Trump might win. But they were going to be very, very cautious because they knew that might be a disagreeable or an unpopular or disbelieved opinion. Uh, Dr. Dunning, do you have children? Uh, no, unfortunately. You don't? Okay. Well, that doesn't no. disqualify you from giving, adv giving advice. If as a parent, and we have you know, endless parents listening right now, you were to try and, if you will, uh, if it's possible even, to give children a, a, a balanced sense of self-ability but also uh, an imbued humility about not to over-assess who they are, how would you go about doing that? Uh, well, I don't have children. I do have students, um, and uh, for the temporary time they're around, there's some aspects of, of, of them being children to guide, if you will. Yes. Um, uh, is I try to um, imbue, let's say, three different lessons. There are a lot of things, so let's, let's talk about three. The first is, and we've already touched upon this, it isn't who you are, it's who you're going to be. And one attitude that really helps is that when you fail, think of it as that's the time it starts getting interesting uh, because you do want to pick over your failures. You want to talk with other people and you want to figure out, okay, how do I move on, uh, move on from here? What lesson do I learn, for example? Uh, how am I going to be different? 
And the one thing I do tell my students that I find even in my advanced age is still relevant to me is the best possible position to be in life and the best possible view you can have about yourself and your past self is to be vaguely embarrassed by anything you've done, uh, let's say, in the past. Uh, I'll take a look at papers I've written in the past. And I kind of go, oh, oh, he missed it here. Oh, clever guy, but uh, no, 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 no. Uh, he didn't get to the right point. And I've accepted the idea that that's actually a positive. <laughs> that means I'm in, uh, 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 the intervening years have meant something. I'm in, I'm in a different place and, and hopefully a better place. Maybe five years from now, I'll stumble onto this uh, interview on the Internet and kind of wince. Mm-hmm. Um, at many of the points that I make. And um, that's unfortunate for the me now. But um, if my me five years from now feels, no, I could have done that better. I could have said this. Now I've, I've come of age and I've realized this, this thing. Uh, it means I've progressed. And so I like to emphasize the journey that we are, the fact that we're all uh, works in progress. And if you're young, if you're a child, you know, you are a work in progress, and um, uh, that's the project that you have. When I was a teenager, I, there was somebody in my life who was quite a, a know-it-all. They seemed to know everything. And one day I decided I'd have a little fun with myself. And so I came up with a fictitious author and a fictitious book. And I said to this person, I just made up a name like, you know, have you read Ethel's Singlemeyer's Blossoms of Yesterday, which did not exist. I just made it up. Oh, yes. Yeah. Great, great tune. So on. And I just smiled to myself and didn't embarrass him and just moved on. You have actually done tests, both you and, uh, and Justin Kruger, where you've uh, invoked non-existent terms to see if people will claim knowledge. And they have actually, uh, not surprisingly, based on what you've been doing, come through and said, oh, yes, we have a, a profound knowledge of this area, one of which is economics. Oh, yes. Uh, well, uh, I didn't do the work with Justin, but I have done work with Sabatier and Emily Rosenzweig on what's referred to the overclaiming effect. Uh, that is, you're going to study areas where or things that people don't know anything about and you want to test whether or not they know them. Uh, it's great to just come up with things that don't exist. By definition, our, 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 our participants, are, um, our respondents don't know anything about what's going on. And, and the work has bubbled up in a lot of different places. Bill Paulus has done work on this as well. But it is astonishing how much people will claim to have expertise about something they cannot have expertise on because those things simply do not exist. I mean, we did one study of um, financial knowledge and slipped in three non-existent financial terms and asked people, are you familiar with this term? Do you know what it is? And 91% of people um, said yes to at least one of those three terms, sometimes uh, all three. And um, so, uh, are they are they lying, I, or do they do they really believe they 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 know those terms? Uh, I think they really believe it. I mean, they're they're definitely at some point it, it, there is self presentation going on in certain circumstances. Yes, but um, in one of the studies that we did is we basically told people, look, some of the terms we're presenting to you do not exist. Be forewarned. And it did nothing to uh, cause the uh, phenomenon to evaporate whatsoever. Wow. Uh, so even if people are warned that yeah. uh, some of the terms they're going to see are fake, um, they find themselves with some familiarity of, of these terms. And uh, and actually, if you think about the psychology of it, it makes a lot of sense. If you see a term and the term seems plausible, you can come up with at least a partial story of what the term must be, which suggests that it must be real. Um, we're not very good at spotting what makes something fake. Uh, and so it's not a surprise that people fall prey to this overclaiming effect, or it's it's surprisingly easy to get people to fall prey to the overclaiming effect. I just worry about all the times I must have fallen prey to it myself and don't know. Well, one of the things you, you say is it's not about others. It's really about us. We're all susceptible to doing this. Um, it particularly can be costly in the realm of business. Now, as you've uh, alluded to elsewhere, 86% of businesses fail within the first five years. Um, how does that relate to, indeed, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect? Uh, it relates in a number of ways. Um, it relates the idea that people often don't prepare for the notion of unknown unknowns. That is, they have a, a story in their head. They've had a scenario they've drawn out about what they need to do to make their business to succeed. 
And often what happens is that, well, that story is partially true, but it's more complicated. There are things they never thought of that actually come in and interfere with the success of that business. And, and thus they undercapitalize. They don't have enough money on hand to survive for how long it's going to take to become profitable or to survive a, a, a reversal, for example. And I think this actually matters because um, often, uh, getting back to the issue, is confidence good or bad? People will say, oh, well, okay, uh, 86% of businesses fail, but you know, 14% uh, succeed, and too bad for those individuals. But for society, we're better off because of these new businesses. Uh, so confidence is good, even if it leads to failure. And my response is, well, imagine all the terrific businesses that were in that 86%. If they were a little less confident and a little more prepared, if they were a little bit more knowledgeable that something's going to happen and I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be a worry, um, we'd be even better off as a society because a lot of those businesses would have succeeded if they could have survived their childhood. So it. It, it, it's exactly a recipe where Dunning-Kruger can occur, and it's exactly a recipe where we've been deprived of some wonderful businesses and some wonderful ideas uh, because people are overconfident in the execution of setting uh, things up at the beginning. One of the things I hear with you, Dr. Dunning, is um, or don't hear, and I mean this uh, admirably, is I don't hear condemnation. I hear identification. I hear sympathy and empathy, recognizing that we're all prone to this uh, on, on a regular basis. What is, do you think, the key thing that you'd like to transmit to not only this audience, but all audiences about this, the most profound thing that you've noted and you think would be beneficial for humanity if, if we took into account? Well, uh, I think the, the thing that I would point to is that uh, a lot of the problems that we've been talking about and a lot of phenomena that I study happen when people try to go it alone, when they use themselves as their only resource. Um, but um, if we work together in harmony, if we collect mentors, if we collect uh, sounding boards that we can um, discuss our ideas uh, with, if we act more as a collective, if you will, and share information and thoughts and argument, we would be much better off because uh, we all make errors. But luckily, um, among all of us, we make different errors. And so we have a shot at correcting the errors of other people or having other people uh, correct our own errors. So one of my favorite phrases is we have to huddle together to muddle along. I think that's the thing that um, I would suggest. Now, uh, you don't want to consult others deeply on every single decision. Uh, do I get the cheeseburger or just the hamburger this afternoon? No, 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 no. But when the decision is important, I think it is important to consult with other people uh, because the most consequential decisions we make, starting a business, buying a home, buying a car, uh, marrying a person, having a child, are decisions we don't come across all that often. But they're heavy in their consequences. And I think then uh, it's a good thing to consult and to hear what other people have to say, especially other people who've had the experience. Uh, they can let us know something that might be a game changer in terms of what our future might be. We're told in this world, obviously, that we have introverts and extroverts, and there is a continuum. No one is exclusively an introvert, as you know, and, uh, and no one is exclusively uh, an extrovert. But it does seem to be that the introverts are at a loss because very often they don't get to chip in, they don't get to chime in, if you will, and, and give their viewpoint, and we subsequently lose as a result. Um, do you think there'd be interesting variables in studying this phenomenon in relation to those with uh, with an inclination to be introverted versus extroverted? I uh, I think absolutely yes, uh, and I think there uh, there it's an interesting, completely open question about what individual differences might come into play uh, in terms of uh, where we're helpless ourselves against our ignorance, or where we can be uh, helpful for other people. I mean, the, the one thing we've been able to determine is that if uh, you're the type of person who tends to jump to conclusions on very little evidence, uh, you're most likely to experience the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, there's a jumping to conclusions, cognitive style, if you will, or behavior, if you will, that we find uh, causes people to make a lot of mistakes and not know they're making mistakes. And people who lay back and collect more evidence certainly do a lot more effort, but they also make many fewer mistakes. 
And um, uh, we were actually directed to this idea uh, by the fact that if in the uh, literature on schizophrenia, uh, uh, schizophrenia patients who fall prey to their delusion tend to be those who jump to conclusions, those who lay back and collect data before they reach a decision actually are much less delusion prone. And well, we imported that into the general population. And it turns out that a lot of everyday delusions that people suffer are, are those who suffer them the most uh, tend to have this jumping to conclusions tendency themselves. So that's one thing. Um, there has to be a host of other things, but it is instructive to me that we've been able to go 20 years and not find, ah, the personality trait that explains everything that we've just never been very successful with that one hit and all the all the attempts we've made. Dr. David Dunning, I'm interested in you as an individual as well, and I'm particularly curious as to the overflow. We can study something academically, and then we can see it, if you will, spill uh, into the rest of our lives, particularly with our perceptions of people. So, for instance, I don't know the particulars or the examples, but if you were going to go in for surgery, to what extent would the idea play in your mind of, well, some surgeons can be extremely overconfident, and how do I assess that this person is is really the worthy candidate to be working on my spine or whatever part of the anatomy might come into play. Um, how has this affected you in your private life? I mean, as far as everything from w- watching waiters in a restaurant to um, observing colleagues to uh, personal associations? Well, I think uh, what I've learned is that uh, professional fact checkers actually have it right, uh, if you will. So you, you bring up the, the doctor example, and how do I figure out if this doctor is actually uh, giving me the best possible information, or is this doctor um, tending more toward the side of a hack, uh, if you will? And what fact checkers tell us is you really can't tell by looking at the thing, the doctor, if you will. Uh, You have to do a lateral study. And what lateral study means is you have to go to another doctor and see how they handle the situation. And do they come to the same conclusion? And do they uh, recommend the same uh, course of uh, of treatment, for example? And that comes in. Uh, so, so the idea is you do not try to figure out, based on the thing you, or the person you have in front of you, are they trustworthy or not? You go to a lateral source and see if they come up with the same sort of conclusion. And that actually right now in uh, my personal life, and I think everybody's personal life, is uh, we're facing a a new virus. It has properties that are like none other. Information about it and recommendations about it are changing all the time. Uh, How do you tell whether or not the new, new thing that you hear is something that you should uh, believe and something that you should follow? Well, uh, the stance that I've taken is I wait until I hear uh, ratification or confirmation from some other independent source. So um, the, the best example for me uh, was uh, early on there was um, the notion, I think that turns out to be true, that a, a warning symptom of COVID was you lost your sense of taste and smell. I remember hearing that, and I, I didn't file that away as truth, but I said I'm going to wait a few days and wait until someone else independent confirms that. And uh, in in that case, it it was confirmed. There are other things I've heard that uh, turn out not to have been confirmed. But fact checkers and they're checking stories all know this. Uh, If they want to know uh, if the story is true or not, um, they don't study the story, its internal characteristics. They go to other sources and see if they can get confirmation of what's being said in this story. So this idea of lateral checking Checking a second source, getting a second opinion, I think, uh, is certainly something I've adopted in my own life. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am utterly delighted to have Dr. David Dunning with us today. This is one of the richest conversations I think we've had uh, in some time, and it's wonderful to have him here. You will recognize his name associated with Justin Kruger. Together, they started to study the competency uh, ratio, if you will, of self-knowledge and actual uh, ability coming to fruition. It's become known. They hadn't coined the phrase themselves, but they've accepted it. It's become known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, where people uh, very often uh, rarely see themselves as average, but have a great proclivity to see themselves as exceptional in some regard. In relation to the Dunning-Kruger effect, what role do mentors come into this? And in fact, how important are they? I think mentors are incredibly invaluable. Uh, 
because uh, when you're trying out something new, when you're on a new job, a new journey, uh, trying on a new role, that's exactly the, the time you're going to be uh, walking into unknown unknowns that you just have no idea. And the real problem is, is that um, unknown unknowns and not knowing everything doesn't necessarily cause you to be a failure, but it does prevent you from being the full success that you can be. There are missed opportunities, but you will never know them because they're missed. You never see them. But if you have a mentor, uh, they can give you tips on how to succeed. They can give you tips on opportunities. They can absolutely solve the problem of unknown unknowns, letting you know what the real issues are that potentially you uh, should be paying attention to. Oh, and by the way, I would maybe recommend having more than one mentor when dealing with something important because you want to hear what your mentors agree on as well as what they disagree on. That sometimes can be tremendously informative. Um, the Chinese have a proverb that uh, to know the road ahead, ask someone coming back from there. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, and uh, that I have found in life has been a, a tremendously valuable dictate to live by. Well, Dr. David Dunning, I have found that you have been an utterly wonderful guest and uh, enriching and extremely gratifying to talk to you. Thank you for being a significant voice in America. As we watch America on this program, we look for people who uh, advance our humanity and our understanding of ourselves and others. And you have effectively done that, sir, today. I've been speaking to Dr. David Dunning, who is known to most by his work with his colleague Justin Kruger for the phrase the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is really an examination of our competency in reality versus our perceived or self-perceived competency, which may not always match. Thank you, Dr. David Dunning, very much for being a part of Watching America. Take care and God bless. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our pleasant and friendly recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our good-humoured producer is Paul Bebo. Our congenial and kind senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our calm and confident executive producer is Chuck Dowd. And our delightful chief of content is Heather Mazzoni. And our jovial CEO is Bert Schmidt. I am the series creator and host, the at times humorous and hopefully playful Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care. Blessings. There are reports that there is no evidence of a direct link between Baghdad and some of these terrorist organizations. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> Excuse me, but is this an unknown unknown? Uh, I'm not. Several unknowns, and I'm, I'm just wondering if this going, is an unknown I'm not going to say which it is. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.